This week on the show, we cover our experiences from EuroBSDCon 2019. We also have a little article, not so uh, short actually, setting about a build bot on FreeBSD jails. We also have a tutorial from uh, OpenBSD using OpenSMTBD, Dovecot and RSPMD. For the packet radio enthusiasts, we have a HamBSD website coverage as well as Dragonfly BSD's Hammer 2 getting FSCK, interesting, and the return of Start X for users in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 317, Bots Building Jails. Recorded for the 26th of September 2019. Hello, I'm Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're back from EuroBSDCon, and this is our first headline, of course, after such an amazing conference. Uh, EuroBSDCon 2019 just finished last week, and um, that was held in Lillehammer, Norway. And we thought we'd cover it a little bit in this first piece of the show. Yeah, uh, Norway was quite beautiful and the weather cooperated quite nicely especially for the uh, social event uh, as usual with these uh, conferences it was started off with two days of tutorials in parallel with uh, there was a FreeBSD dev summit for both days and a NetBSD dev summit for the second day um, some very interesting tutorials this year uh, I know that uh, Tom Jones did a, a very interesting hardware hacking tutorial that involved a bunch of single board computers and so on. So as part of registering for it, you actually got uh, all the components and so on. And then, of course, uh, there were a bunch of other tutorials that uh, the people I spoke to seemed to really enjoy. Uh, and then we had the two main days of the conference. Yeah, that's the general uh, format of EuroBSD cons, and um, that worked quite well. And so people could pick uh, either to go to tutorials or uh, to dev summits if they're invited. So that worked well. And um, oh, we should also definitely mention the social event that we uh, attended. Uh, so overall, uh, at the closing, they said we were like 212 people, but they fit everyone in because it was uh, basically a, a museum under the sky. Yes, an open air museum. I think we got split up into a bunch of groups of about 30. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was more easier to handle for the guy, for the people who did the um, the, the guiding or the the explanation. Well, uh, for example, uh, my group started at the the older part of the museum, uh, which is uh, a collection of farmhouses and and old stuff. Uh, so I guess it was the way they explained it in the eighteen hundreds. Um, a dentist uh, from the city of Lillehammer. Uh, noticed that a lot of people from the rural area had started moving into the cities uh, and decided that it made sense to try to preserve their um, cultural history, their way of life and their their houses and so on. So this actually involved going out into the country, labeling all of the individual components of their houses, because they're basically log cabin style, uh, numbering all of the logs, tearing the house apart, relocating it to the plot of land he had in Lillehammer, and putting it back together. Collecting houses. Normally that would sound pretty ridiculous, but uh, it turns out, uh, actually my dad's uh, group does the same thing with like 1900s farms uh, where in the area, rural area where I grew up where they find these old barns and then tear them apart plank by plank and rebuild them on their museum site. <laughs> so it's a very uh, similar thing, except for uh, about another century older. Um, and so it was very interesting to see um, they had a stave church, uh, which was originally built in the 1200s uh, on the location of the original church, which was built in like the 10 hundreds. And it had been expanded and so on, but uh, you could go there and see that, and they explained how it all worked. Then we visited a schoolhouse. Part of the reason to be broken up into groups of 30 is so that we could actually fit in the schoolhouse. Yeah, <laughs> with the teacher. And we also went to one of the farmhouses and also saw like the cow barn and a bunch of other bits. And they explained how they had a larger summer house uh, for the summer, and that's where they would have... Uh, they would also feed the farmhands and everybody at the big dinner table and so on. But then during the winters, they would uh, live in a smaller house that was easier to keep heated uh, and, you know, had more insulation and so on. And they wouldn't have as many people around necessarily. And also 
you know, how they would send some of the animals up into the, the mountains during the summer. Uh, so they would graze on that grass that was, you know, only accessible in the summer. Uh, but also that would allow them to, to harvest uh, wheat and so on in the winter uh, or for the winter uh, from the summer pastures and so on. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And then uh, after that area, we moved on to the last century area uh, where they had a number of houses from different decades. Uh, so the first one that I saw was a 1915 house uh, and it showed what some of that looked like. Uh, and it was interesting. They basically had a house from each decade for most of the uh, 20th century. And you were able to see kind of the evolution of things and the different styles and the different appliances and so on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Although, weirdly, the 1915 house in the one corner had a flat screen TV. I don't think that was meant to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was amusing. <laughs> but uh, I think the 1930s house that we saw was the uh, where the Queen of Norway originally grew up. Uh, so that was additionally interesting. And then they had the 40s house and the 50s. I think my favorite was the 80s house. Um, <laughs> it was one of the ones that actually had uh, you know, a person living in it, uh, basically an actress who would provide flavor and, and information and so on about it. Uh, but she did a really good job. I found it very entertaining. Um, although it was also very interesting, it wasn't... Uh, not all the houses were open where you could go inside, and one of the ones that wasn't was the... Uh, House of the Future, uh, basically what they imagined the future would look like in twenty or two thousand and one. Uh, but you could look in the windows, and we saw some very interesting things. <laughs> uh, you know, computers that had flat screen monitors, but with bezels that were like you know four or five centimeters thick. Um, or there were these pillars that held up the roof and so on, but they all had a couple of screens attached to them. But they had headphones with cables connected. And it was like, yeah, that's probably how we would have imagined the multimedia stuff being in 2001 uh, before, you know, the invention of Bluetooth and, and more ubiquitous Wi-Fi and making the screens smaller and carry them around in our pockets instead of just putting lots and lots of screens all over your house so that you're never far from one. Yeah, that was certainly an interesting vision of the future, looking back. But yes, also going through those houses with uh you know people from a variety of age ranges and, and countries and so on uh was very interesting you know especially going through the 70s and 80s houses and somebody's like my parents had that same stove <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh and actually with the lady in the 80s house we could, uh, afterwards i was like we could have been like we're people from the future we can tell you what's gonna happen and things like that so <laughs> no violating the temporal prime directive right yeah <laughs> so yeah uh, that was certainly exciting and then we went down into the town which had uh, a general store from i think the the 1930s ish area um the post office including the postal train where they actually sorted the mail en route on the train to save time and a number of other stores that i didn't end up actually having time to visit because uh, i was so amused by the houses from the different decades, I spent extra time there uh, and didn't have as much time to explore down there. Uh, and it was getting dark by the time we got there. But overall, that was a very interesting uh, social event. I liked it. Uh, and then we had a dinner uh, at the hotel restaurant, which was reserved for our group. because well, no, it was a museum restaurant. Or museum restaurant, yeah. So... Um that was also good. And we didn't have uh, to walk far back because it was like 10 minutes away from the hotel where the conference was. Barely even that. It was very close by. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, into the conference. Uh, the conference started on a very strong note uh, with the opening keynote by uh, Patricia Az, um, who gave her talk on embedded ethics, uh, which is mostly about the ethics of the, the computer programs we write and the things we do with them. It was interesting, especially to see her perspective as someone who is uh, researching and trying to defend the sanctity of Norwegian elections, uh, and in particular trying to get um, the government and reporters and so on in um, Norway to take the threats to the election system seriously. You know, comparing paper ballot systems to the system they were trying to propose that would be a bunch of windows xp machines connected to the internet during the election it's like let's not have that <laughs> um but also as a former developer on the opera web browser and so on she had the very unique perspective of 
um, having worked on especially privacy sensitive uh, applications like a web browser before and the different sides of that um, gave a very good talk about ethics and uh, even things like if uh, I guess one of the good anecdotes she had was you know if someone is in public and has some kind of uh, medical emergency and falls down or whatever um, if there's if only one person sees them they're very likely that one person will go and help but if it happens on a crowded street, most people will assume somebody else will do it. Or because no one else is doing it, they shouldn't do it either. Uh, and it results in sometimes nobody uh, offering help. Yeah. But if one person just, you know, yells, somebody call 911 or whatever, um, then suddenly everyone will be spurred into action. Uh, and, and very good details on how um, that mental model and how just people as a group work. Um, but then she also got into some of the bits of the responsibility that we as developers and the people kind of building the internet and the infrastructure have, um, you know, in general, as a tech community, we've unleashed this very complex digital world upon everyone without really giving them a choice necessarily. Um, and many of them have barely any technical literacy. So, you know, it's all just magic boxes and so on to them. Uh, and we've left them without the right tools to actually make informed decisions about their privacy and so on. Or to the point where when we try to explain what some of the problems with the way privacy on social media works or whatever, they either don't believe us and think we're, you know, conspiracy theorists, uh, or they can't believe what we've done to them and they're very upset with us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, also her stories about trying to explain these problems to, um, journalists and politicians, uh, really struck a chord with a lot of us who have, you know, looked at proposed legislation dealing with tech and being like, how do you so fundamentally not understand how this stuff works? Right. Like the, you know, encryption that only the government can break kind of concept that have been brought up many times. And it's like. I'm sure somebody sat down and explained to you how that doesn't work like that, but you just didn't listen or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, her stories about trying to spending hours explaining this all to journalists and then they don't print anything because they've decided they don't actually understand it or whatever. Or can't put that amount in a, in a small article for people to understand. Yes, can't actually distill it into something that people can understand. Uh, so anyway, I highly recommend that when the videos come out shortly, uh, that you catch that one and uh, all the other talks. Um, Paul Vixie's uh, DNS talk was quite evolved from the one at VBSDCon. So um, some of the slides were in a different order. Like he started with his uh, script rather than having it be about three quarters of the way through the slides. Um, and he focused on different parts of it and skipped different sets of slides when he was short on time. Um, and so you could watch both talks completely and uh, you would actually, there's not very much duplicate information. It basically <laughs> seems like we could have just, we should have given Paul two hours to get through all of his material. Uh, but it was uh, very interesting and I look forward to uh, rehashing that all again in my head, <laughs> making it a whole stick. Oh, yes, yeah. And, I mean, all the three rooms where the um, talks were given uh, were live-streamed, so people could watch that if they had uh, time throughout the day. Uh, but they were also recorded, so... Yep, and we, we should have the recordings turned around pretty quickly. Yeah, that was great. And yes, of course, there was uh, a very lively hallway track as well, so people had good uh, interactions uh, during the talks, or outside of talks, basically. And uh, plans were made for future developments and some people met there for the first time. It's always nice to see. I met a, a number of people uh, who said they were only there because of the podcast or that this was their first conference. So it was very nice to get to meet them. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, good stuff happened there. I think one of my favorite, favorite talks was actually the very last one uh, that I went to. Uh, the absurdities of security compliance with FreeBSD. Oh, yes. Uh, from Modirum. You know, things like shit auditors said. <laughs> Uh, we're, you know, getting weird auditing questions like, you know, 
what kind of streetlights are outside of your office? It's like, well, none of the sensitive data is at our office. Why does it matter? It's like, we need to know what kind of streetlights you have. We're like, how often do the police patrol your street? I, how would I know? <laughs> they don't tell me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and lots of interesting bits. Uh, so that one was, uh, I like that one. Mm, that was represented. And uh, Warner's Unix history talk was uh, really good. Oh, yeah. He had a lot of uh, ancient material from when we both weren't born yet. It really makes you think about how we need to preserve history, right? Which really fit in with the concept of this, uh, the social event we went to. And I say, you know, I'm sure in 1930, they weren't thinking about how they should, you know, save our house so that in the year 2020, people can see what our house looked like. At the same time, you know, uh, turns out back in the early history of Unix, it would be really helpful if some people would have saved some things in boxes uh, instead of losing them. Or, you know, how some of the stuff we're only getting because, oh, it turns out somebody did have a copy of that in a box in their basement, but it didn't have a label, so we don't know if it's the one from 1974 or 1975. And they're not the same version. At least we have a version, but we don't know which one it is. <laughs> and why it's, yeah, why it's so important to... Uh, preserve the history as we're doing this stuff yeah otherwise you get uh, concurrent versions or people remember it differently and then you have no idea what which which one is right uh so that was that was also a great talk yeah uh yeah so definitely thanks to all the uh, people who made it happen all the sponsors of course all the speakers and the hotel staff was also uh deserves a thanks and oh yes uh special mention of food the food was great mm -hmm. And uh, it just happens that I walked into the lunchroom from one end instead of the other. Um, and that's where the desserts were. <laughs> so immediately it was like, this is going to be a good lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just the amount of food and uh, a lot of uh, fresh fish, of course. I uh, have not eaten so much fish. <laughs> it's like two kinds of uh, smoked salmon for breakfast. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, white, white fish. and Well, I think just over the course of that trip, I also ate uh, elk burger, or like elk patty, um, a moose burger, many different kinds of beef and pork and chicken. Uh, and I had duck and lamb and deer. <laughs> Basically ate all of the animals. <laughs> that, that the country could provide. And yeah. lots of vegetables too. I had, uh, the, the buttered carrots were exceptional. Yeah, so just the, the food alone would get you very excited about the conference. And that was just dessert, uh, or just uh, the breakfast. <laughs> yeah, just the breakfast and lunch, yeah. So yeah, um, thanks again for everyone organizing that, the sponsors, of course, uh, who made uh, an, a conference like this possible. And yeah, we look forward to next year, because it's going to be in Vienna, Austria, Excellent. Uh, from September 17th to the 20th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm sure they will put up a website in a couple of months to get people to uh, get excited about it. But that's not the only uh, news that we have in this week's episode, of course. We have something uh, practical here, uh, which is setting up a build bot in FreeBSD jails. Uh, so this is a, basically a how-to, a very uh, detailed one. So it says, uh, in this article, I'd like to present a tutorial on how to set up a build bot for continuous integration, like Jenkins, Drone, etc., uh, making use of FreeBSD's containerization mechanism called Jails. And we'll cover the te uh, terminology, rationale for using both BuildBot and Jails together, uh, and the installation steps. Uh, in the end, you will have a working BuildBot instance using its simple build uh, configuration, uh, ready to play around with your own CI or even CD. Um, some hints for production-grade installations are given, but tutorial steps are meant uh, for a testing environment, like a virtual machine, and BuildBot's configuration and detailed concepts are kind of out of scope here. But, you know, starting from the beginning, choosing an OS to run your BuildBot on, creating your FreeBSD playground, uh, introduction to jails, overview of what BuildBot is, how to set up the jail, run a BuildBot master, run a BuildBot worker, set up a web server with Nginx to access the BuildBot UI, doing your first builds, and then some hints on deploying it in production. All ready for copy and pasting, uh, but you should of course read the prose text around it as well, because that explains what you're actually doing. And yeah, as we said, it's very detailed. 
I've not actually used BuildBot before, but I have installed one before as part of the reproduction steps for a, a ZFS problem that was pointed out to me at last year's uh, EuroBSD con, in which I went on to fix in time for FreeBSD 12. Oh, good. So I have a tiny bit of experience with BuildBot, even though I didn't use it to build anything. It's just, if you run this BuildBot, it opens and closes enough files at the right way to trigger this ZFS bug uh, and use it as the reproduction step. Ah, yes, it creates the load necessary for uh, for that. <laughs> yeah, it's one use of the tool. Uh, <laughs> but the other people can, of course, use it to build uh, ports and stuff. Um, I think nowadays, I don't actually know for sure, that there are also Vagrant images that use ZFS instead of only UFS, uh, so that could help. Uh, take one of the steps out of this uh, tutorial. Yeah, the whole pool setup and uh, that is already done in the machine then. Mm -hmm. Okay, sounds good. And uh, yeah, if people are interested in that, check out the tutorial. But that's not the only tutorial that we have this week. We also have uh, something in the mail area, setting up a mail server with OpenSMTPD, Dovcot, and AirSpamD to get spammers out of your inbox. So, um, the too long didn't read goes, um, this time I spent hours writing, you should speed, you, oh, you should spend minutes reading. Yeah, that's only fair. Okay, I spent in way too much details how to set up a mail server. Yeah, it's a long article with a lot of uh, cat pictures, wait, um, <laughs> with a lot of more illustrations in between, uh, but there's also uh, things in there that can be used to actually set up the mail server. There are um, code sections in there. Basically, starting off with uh, self-hosting and encouraging smaller providers is for the greater good, so that you don't use uh, a mail service that everyone's using, but that you run your own little system for your own small infrastructure or your own little company, maybe. Um, so the article starts with, first of all, I was not clear enough about the political consequences of centralizing mail service at big mailer corps. Uh, it doesn't make sense for random Joe sharing kitten pictures with his family and friends to build a personal mail infrastructure when multiple mail corps user or big mailer corps offer for free an amazing quality of service. Uh, they provide him with an email address that is immediately available and which will generally work reliably. It really doesn't make sense for random Joe not to go there and particularly if even techies go there without hesitation, providing it is a sound choice. There's nothing wrong with Random Joe using a service that works. Uh, what is terrible wrong, though, is the centralization of communication protocols in the hands of a few commercial companies. Every single one of them. Coming from the same country. Currently led by a lunatic. Well, that's we skipped that. Um, <laughs> every single one of them having been in the news and or in a court of random assorted unpleasant behaviors. Privacy abuses, eavesdropping, monopoly abuse, sexual or uh, professional harassment. You just name it. And every single one of them growing user bases that far exceeds the total population of multiple countries combined. Yeah, so that's why that's the motivation for setting up your own mail server and using uh, free and open components like OpenSMTPD, Dovcot, and RSpamD uh, to kind of replicate that kind of setup in a little smaller scale maybe, but having the same features like mail filtering and uh, things that um, the mail is fetched and delivered correctly. And they talk about, you know, how to set up the hosts and what kind of requirements that needs and how to start installing the system, of course, and then generating uh, SSL keys or the proper keys for the encryption. And then they have a section on uh, SPF, DKIM, and DMARC uh, for all the anti-spam. And then at the middle parts, they have a section about installing and configuring RSpamD and what it is and does for you. And of course, at the final piece, there is OpenSMTBD, which basically ties all of these things together for the actual mail uh, sending and delivery. And as the user client, you have uh, Dovcot, uh, but that's, you can basically switch with another tool if you so desire. So yeah, it's plenty of uh, material there to read through, but it's fairly straightforward with the examples given here. So you should be able to set up your own mail server in no time. Yeah, and basically the point being that um, we want mail to be a distributed system with many different providers. Uh, and if we end up with everybody's mail being from Microsoft, Google, Apple, uh, or Facebook, then that's not good for the health of the internet. 
keep things distributed and uh, then you have at least a choice of either running it yourself and fixing all your problems yourself of course also but um, having a bit of choice available not just uh, oh these three only Next up, uh, we have the HamBSD project, which aims to bring amateur packet radio to OpenBSD. Oh, huh, interesting. Yes. Um, so this is basically doing two-way IPv4 communication via a simple TNC protocol. So HamBSD contains tools to identify your transmission. Uh, so be sure to use those. Nothing uh, uses your call sign unless you configure it to do so. But the idea is to bring amateur packet radio to OpenBSD, including support for TCP IP over AX.25 and APRS uh, with uh, tracking and digipeding into the base system. Um, it says, HamBSD will not provide a full AX.25 stack, but instead only implement support for the UI frames. There will be a focus on simplicity, security, and readable code. The amateur radio community needs a reliable platform for packet radio for use in both leisure and emergency scenarios. It should be expected that the system is stable and resilient. And I have some tools like ICLCD, the Identification Compliant with Licensed Conditions Daemon. Uh, okay. ICLCD sends a Hamdex identification frame uh, using the contents of your ETC My Call Sign file up to either the first new line or the end of the file. It is usually started at boot time, and you can configure it by enabling ICLCD in your rc.conf. Okay, that seems straightforward. Edit. Oh, I see on their website uh, that they also have a hardware-wanted part in the supporting HemBSD, and if you happen to have that, they would probably go into good hands helping them to extend the system a bit further. But uh, I know quite a few people in the BSD world are into ham radio and so on so uh seems like an interesting project uh, thanks to tom jones for pointing it out to me so maybe we'll see a talk about this kind of uh, thing how to get started with it uh, that would be interesting to uh the newcomers in the ham radio world so next up we have uh dragonfly uh, hammer 2 gets fsck support uh, this one is interesting because we heard a couple of news from Hammer uh, and Hammer 2 uh, subsequently, of course. But there is, uh, uh, until now at least, no FSCK program that checks your file system for errors. Interestingly enough, now they have one or are introducing it. And here, um, so they write in the short article here uh, that Hammer 2 is copy and write, as everyone knows, meaning changes are made to copies of existing data. This means operations are generally atomic and can survive a power outage. Um, there's more information about it, of course. However, there's now an FSCK command useful if you want a report of data validity rather than any manual repair process. And so that commits, uh, that link commit, or that link is to the commit message this way um, so that they uh, show why this is important. And so again, Hammer is copy and write, so it, there's no need to make these kinds of fixes like in classical file systems, um, but it gives you a nice little report showing uh, how your uh, Hammer 2 is being used. Yeah, so currently it doesn't implement any repairing, so it never writes to the disk, but it does allow you to verify the integrity of everything. Uh, which is very useful to have. Yeah, it's basically a scrub for ZFS. Um, I don't think, you know, it's it's more like an FSCK for UFS, just that it doesn't repair anything. It just points out any problems. There shouldn't ever be any, but being able to detect them is useful. Yeah, better not uh, be on the wrong side here. Okay, if someone has something about this or use this, uh, then we would love to hear uh, about that or send us a little bit of a message to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv about that. It would be nice to have a bit more about Hammer 2 or Dragonfly in general. Uh, then we have something returning from, uh, not, the, not exactly the crypt, but uh, from a little bit of the unknown parts or forgotten parts in cvs deleted files go to the attic yeah <laughs> that's yeah that's a good uh, way of describing it so we put something or they put something down here from the attic uh, the return of start x for users over at undeadly.org 
So this is OpenBSD related, of course. Uh, Mark Kettenis has recently committed changes which restore a certain amount of start X slash X init functionality for non-root users. Uh, so this is the commit message uh, displayed here that they have. The log message reads at TTYC4 to lost uh, to well, lots of devices to change when logging in on TTYC0 and in some cases also the zero console, such as X can use it as its VT when running without root privileges. Yeah, so this makes StartX uh, and X init work again on modern systems with Intel DRM, Radeon DRM, and AMD GPU. In some cases, this will result in using a different driver than using XenoDM, their Xenocara uh, driver, which may expose issues. Yeah, well, XenoDM is the login manager. Ah, yes. Which would be started as root or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, it'd be the login prompt. Basically, if you instead log in on the console and run StartX, it might result in... Uh, using different a different driver or uh, booting without acceleration, uh, because as a non-root user, you cannot scan the PCI bus to see which cards are there. Uh, but the fact that that works again will be uh, less confusing to users when they run go go to run StartX, and it will actually work instead of saying you're not root, you can't do that. Okay, this should be a nice thing for. Uh getting more modern graphics running it says it adds the mode setting driver as a fallback uh when appropriate uh it's like when you're not running with root privileges yep so these are the developments in openbsd in the graphics area or x11 next we have um our beast events for this week always interesting uh small little tidbits and we also look forward to getting them from you as well so again send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv if you have a, sh a short story for us here uh the first one here is Ori bernstein will be giving the october talk at NiceBug. uh this is the announcement uh from pat mcevoy who was also at the euro con conference doing the live streaming by the way what i forgot to mention was special thanks to patrick uh, the people from the Norwegian Unix users group uh, and the people from the media company that the conference hired uh, for making all the video streaming uh, happen. Uh, they did an excellent job. Uh, the conference is very well set up. They even went so far as in the main room for the conference. Uh, one half of the room had a, um, what was that kind of loop called? Oh, induction loop? Yeah, an induction loop uh, for people with hearing aids that can pick up from that. Uh, which was uh, very thoughtful. And also uh, Scale Engine provided the streaming, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> but uh, it would have been of no use without uh, Patrick uh, being there to help run it, uh, the people from the Norwegian Unix users group providing extra equipment, uh, or just the cooperation of the, the folks that were actually recording the talks. Mm -hmm. So thanks to everyone who helped there. Okay, back to this item here. Uh, so the October 2019 will have a talk by Ori Bernstein uh, in VBSDCon. Not VBSDCon. Nice bug, of course. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, and interestingly, so Ori has proposed four different talks, and I'm guessing the people on the list get to vote about which one they would like to see. Oh, wow. Uh, so the first option is uh, a version of his talk about how the QCOW2 file format works, uh, which was also presented at BSDCAN. Uh, option two is how system calls work, uh, or something related to that. Option three, he has another talk on how uh, futexes uh, work and how you can implement concurrency primitives using them. Or option four, I have a rant about uh, Plan 9 <laughs> that he gave at the uh, Bay Area Linux uh, Large Systems Administrator Group uh, and is uh, probably lighter and more entertaining uh, and the most easily accessible to, say, non-developers. But it's not very specific to BSD per se, other than that Plan 9 is an honorary BSD, kind of. Uh, anyway, one of those uh, will be the topic at uh, the October meeting of NiceBug. Uh, so you might still have time and to get on the list there and vote for which one you'd like to see. But either way, um, do make it out to their uh, meeting in October. Uh, to see yes they don't have the date announced yet but it's usually early in the month so it'll be coming up very soon uh, so keep an eye out on uh, nicebug.org nycbug.org uh, for when the next meeting is so soon is a, is a good uh, point here the next item is the bsd pizza night which happens basically tomorrow <laughs> yeah well yeah so when this comes out it, it happens on thursday and this will come out either Wednesday night or Thursday. So yes, very soon. Sorry for the late notice, but 
uh, we were at a conference when the email came in, and so we couldn't get you the information any sooner. Uh, but if you are in the Portland area, you should just uh, connect to the Caligator thing here and get the reminder from them automatically every month. Uh, anyway, uh, BSD Pizza Night will be Thursday, September 26th, 7 to 9 p.m. at Blackbird Pizza in uh, on Southeast Hawthorne Boulevard. Do check it out. And if you miss it, use the Caligator thing uh, to catch it next month. I think it's the last-ish Thursday of every month or something like that. Check the calendar. Yeah, and they are moving between pizza joints, so it's not always at the same place. Yes, it goes to a different place every time, so it will always be... Or ev eventually it'll be near you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at a local pizza. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out. Uh, so it will repeat in future months. If you miss this one, there's always uh, going to be another one. Uh, this is um, uh, similar to the previous one. We have Noxbuck, a meeting. That's still oncoming, so it's uh, September 30th. Um, so that's next Monday. So there's still time to go. And they have Nick Wolf uh, with a home lab show and tell. This is a really cool idea. Um, like, I would almost do this as a panel-like thing at some BSD conference as one of the talks. Oh, yes. Cool. Um, so uh, this month's meeting, we'll cover the topic of home labs. We'll kick it off with Nick Wolf giving a presentation about his setup, followed by a roundtable discussion about everybody else's home lab. Uh, whether you already have a home lab set up at your house or if you're just starting out, uh, Knoxburg invites you to share your thoughts and experiences. Oh, yeah. You, Alan, you should definitely be on such a panel. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, I'm just thinking of like myself and Dan and uh, maybe some other people that have home labs, but also... <laughs> get the audience participation although you know i, I imagine we could fill the full, full 45 minutes with just going over dan and i's laughs, yeah, I, guess, but, I guess so yeah <laughs> and a bunch of tricks like uh you know how dan got the lsi controllers really cheap by buying the ibm branded ones and reflashing them and you know considerations about power and cooling and all these things yeah worth taking notes maybe that's what my bsd can will be next year yeah make a session about that it could Hmm. Maybe in the evening so that people have more time and don't run into the next talk. Or maybe I can convince them to just have have it before lunch and they can just extend into a boff at lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be good. So uh, because I guess there will be a lot of feedback and questions from the audience. Uh, so uh, this idea was coined live on the show. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, but do do feel free to steal it and do it at your user group or at a Linux conference or whatever. Yes, we also had, um, so uh, someone got sick during the conference and couldn't give his talk at EuroBeastiCon, so they had uh, Eric Allman fill him. But afterwards, there was a discussion on Twitter happening that we maybe should start um, a, a collection of people who could give like five minutes work in progress sessions, and we could fill that um, as a conference slot. Um, we've done that at some of the other conferences. Asia BSDCon has it. Yeah, but uh, we did it at BSDCon one time when there was an empty slot. That one was extra intense because michael lucas was there to make sure you didn't go over your five minutes <laughs> oh yes yeah he does martial arts so don't uh yeah risk any life and limb but yes uh i felt bad for dave uh having to come down ill like that mm, yeah sorry hope he's feeling better i think i might have had a touch of what he had too um uh, i i cut the last five minutes off my talk and ran out to the bathroom <laughs> Yeah, people were kind of sick a bit, uh, or something was going around, um, but hope everyone is fine and recovers. I, I was fine after that, too. It was just inconvenient timing. Well, I had it on the second day of the Dev Summit, which was the hackathon, and I was like super runny nose and things. So I just ate a couple of um, VC3000 from Japan, and that really helped. And for for whatever reason, it's it's good. Yeah, so. just overdose on vitamin C, it'll <laughs> save you. <laughs> Yeah, probably. It's yeah our recommendation for these kinds of things. Um, okay, back to the show. Installing the Lumina desktop in Dragonfly BSD. We have a YouTube video here that explains this, how to run that. Yeah, it goes through the whole process of getting it all installed and configured using the Slim Desktop Manager and Lumina as the desktop environment. Yeah, so you can run that, of course, also in Dragonfly. It's what I run on my computer. Ah, excellent. Yeah, Lumina is, is not limited to a certain desktop or even to a certain operating system. So Yeah, you can run Lumina on 
all the BSDs and on Linux. Oh, and speaking of Dragonfly BSD, uh, we also have this last uh, tidbit here in the news roundup, or no, it's <laughs> it's the quick beastie bits, of course. Uh, the DHCP CD 8.0.6 has been added to Dragonfly BSD. Yep, uh, so it updates to uh, the new version, uh, fixes default routing not being set up properly for IPv6. Uh, in DHCP, if the root file system is network mounted, enable the... Uh, last least extended option uh, fixes to the man page, uh, avoiding any uh, was cloned flags on routes, and importantly, uh, give a better message when packet validation fails and ensure we have enough data to check some the IP and UDP. Um, that last change fixes a potential denial of service attack introduced uh, accidentally in. DCPCD version 8.0.3 uh, when the checksum code was changed to accommodate variable length IP headers. Oh. Important to get that new version as it fixes a potential denial of service that someone in your network could make machines not be able to get uh, DCP and possibly even, you know, an exploit. Well-crafted packages uh, are sent, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, so get the newer version and update. Time for feedback and questions this week. Um, of course, um, people send us stuff, uh, but sometimes it's not enough to fill this part. So um, we would like to have more in this segment. Uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Any questions you have about the BSDs, no matter if you're a beginner or an expert or something in the middle, um, this is something that people listen to and learn a lot, not just the original people who had the question hopefully answered, but also a lot of other people silently listening in and, ah, oh, yes, I had the same problem here and there. And so that's enormously helpful, not just for the original submitter. Uh, the first one is Bruce this week about uh, FOSDEM videos. Bruce writes, Hi, hi, Benedict and Alan. I'm CCing the maintainer of FOSDEM org and feedback at BSD TV. Yep, I was trying to find a video from Alan Jude on FreeBSD, Pudrier, presented at FOSDEM 2019, so this year in uh, February. After some searching away from YouTube, I found a list of the videos at uh, video.fosdem.org slash 2019. Are they listed uh, by room number? They uh, He mentioned at the video end of BSD Now episode 312 uh, and there are no hints in the show notes on to how to find it, and I wanted to search or to watch it. Ah, yes, sorry. Uh, we had the link in the show notes, but it would be episode like 300 or earlier because of when it was. Anyway, um, the best way to find the videos is to go to fosdem.org slash 2019, not just fosdem.org because that's now the page about 2020, uh, which is coming up soon now. Um, if Then go to the schedule and then you can uh, easily navigate the rooms by what the content was. So if you go to schedule and look at the BSD dev room, it'll have a list of all the talks and each talk will have the link to the video and audio for that talk. Uh, I gave two talks at FOSNAM. One is in the main track in the storage category and the other one is in the BSD track. Uh, the Poodoo one is in the BSD track. Uh, so you can use that way. Uh, if you do go to the, the videos directory there, uh, yes, you just have to know the room number. I think it was K340 something. Um, and it'll be in there, but much easier to find it by going to the uh, the main conference website, going to the schedule, and then finding the talk you want. And then on each talk's individual page, it will have uh, an embedded copy of the video with the links to download the video to yourself as well. Uh, whereas that uh, readme file you mentioned in the email um, is more for during the conference uh, after your talk, they email you and ask you to review the video and make sure it's good before they publish it. And um, obviously that system is not hooked up anymore because the conference was over like eight months ago now. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Pretty close. But there's another way. You can go to papers.freebsd.org, go to 2019 and then pause them. And there are the talks and the links to that as well, to the uh, original sources. All the... FreeBSD uh, papers, we've been working very diligently on collecting them all uh, into this one useful website. Yeah, you had a hand in that, uh, bringing of that site and maintaining. Yes, it was my idea. Uh, after watching the OpenBSD people do such a good job of it, I was like, why can't we have nice things? <laughs> and so I went and made us have nice things. <laughs> Yeah, so you can find uh, a lot of talks from various conferences throughout the year there. And if you're looking for 
the particular FOSDEM talks, they are there. At least the BSD can. Or the, yeah. Yes, but uh, all of them there, including uh, Christoph Provost's talk about automated firewall testing, uh, 25 years of FreeBSD, my Explain Like M5 ZFS caching talk, uh, embedded FreeBSD on RISC, uh, FreeBSD graphics, FreeBSD audio, um, FreeBSD continuous integration, uh, kernel memory disclosure detection, K-leak, migrating big data clusters from Linux to FreeBSD, uh, Netflix and FreeBSD, which is also, again, in the main track rather than the BSD track. Um, Velesavod had RSPMD integration into the FreeBSD.org mail infrastructure. Uh, Thomas Monroe from Postgres uh, gave a talk called Walking Through Walls, which was about uh, improving the integration between Postgres and FreeBSD. And then my uh, ZFS-powered magic upgrades was the Poodrayer talk that the uh, person was emailing about. Uh, and uh, bonus information, next year uh, we already got confirmation that the FreeBSD table was confirmed again, so we uh, will have a FreeBSD table again at the conference. And there is talk about um, we wanting to extend the one-day BSD dev room to a two-day, but this will only work when enough people submit talks about BSD. So it doesn't have to be a specific BSD. Anything like user talks, uh, how you use BSD in a certain interesting way. Um, once the call for paper opens, submit that and select the BSD dev room for that. And chances are you will be giving a talk. Yes. Uh, so if we get enough people to submit, we will uh, be able to have the room go on for both days. Yeah. And that's nice of, uh, in case of visibility and uh, yeah, showing that the BSDs are still around. But I guess uh, we covered uh, Bruce's question fairly well now. Uh, so thanks for that. And uh, happy watching uh, our past events. So next up, Lars. Uh, Lars has a mention uh, or a question about the supercluster of BSD on Rock 64 uh, Pro. Uh, so he mentions a previous episode, uh, 312, about 34 minutes, uh, 43 actually, 43 minutes. Alan mentioned something about being in contact uh, with someone working on a cluster using Rock 64 Pros. That would be a really great interview topic. Maybe you'd be willing to come on the show and talk about what they're hacking on. Uh, yeah, sadly, it's Linux-based, and they were only in contact with me as uh, inquiries about data center space and so on. Oh, okay. Too bad. But if you're out there and have the capacity, then why don't you try that on FreeBSD or any BSD out there and then send us this as a news item? We'll definitely be happy to cover that. In, in general... If you're trying to build packages for ARM64, though, you can just get bigger ARM servers instead of trying to connect a bunch of Rock64 Pros together. You know, Rock64 is great. Just the amount of them that you need. This particular project was about uh, offering a package building infrastructure for Linux, and it's like, just get a bigger ARM server instead. Mm -hmm, sure. Then again, you know, if you just want to build a cluster for fun, that's totally acceptable. And, uh, you know, I think this particular group had got a bunch of Rock 64s donated, so that made it, it makes perfect sense to do it that way. And to get, to get started is, yeah, if you have the hardware, then uh, just add the software bits. It sounds easy, but building a cluster is, is an interesting project, but also has its own challenges. Okay, so that's a short answer here. Uh, next up is Madukar uh, with a question. Uh, the message goes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Greetings from Hyderabad, India. Oh, wow. That's uh, quite a distance this message traveled. Okay, uh, I have been a long-time viewer slash listener of BSD Now and have been loving every single episode. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate very much uh, the length of the uh, which you go to ensure that episodes are available on time, the effort you spend on curating and preparing the content, which I find to be very good, the lucid and clear explanations in addition to a very engaging presentation of very technical subjects. Great, thanks for that feedback. It's uh, specific and good to hear and keeps us going. Continues with, I discovered FreeBSD with 7.0 release and have been using it either on bare metal or within a VirtualBox VM ever since. I do not have any special use case, just regular Thunderbird and Firefox with a sprinkling of personal finance applications such as NuCache or Ledger. Perfectly fine use case. I have a 32-bit laptop from 2006, I guess, that came with Windows XP. Just did not feel like throwing away that perfectly good hardware that had enough juice to satisfy my requirements. The machine graduated from Windows to Puppy Linux to FreeBSD, 9.0 release to 10.2 release, to finally OpenBSD, 6.3 to 6.4 to 6.5. 
Uh, I will upgrade to the next OpenBSD release when it becomes available. However, my switch from FreeBSD 11.0 release to OpenBSD came about as the laptop would shut down within 5 minutes due to overheating. A CPU would be packed at its highest frequency and no amount of tweaks would be any help. Besides various random blogs, I referred to the following in my attempts to search for a solution and links to the wiki, FreeBSD wiki about tuning power consumption. Uh, I was wondering if there are any document that you know of or tips to help with the CPU scaling and temperature control of current releases of FreeBSD on such old hardware or machines as it is. There were no issues with OpenBSD so far. It works perfectly out of the box. Uh, along with CWM, it has been a simply fantastic experience on this hardware. Everything works. Laptop runs cool for days together. And he also included the uh, OpenBSD D-Mesh. So in general, the even running at the max frequency, the laptop shouldn't overheat that easily. You know, number one thing is make sure that the fan is not full of dust and cat hair and things like that. Other than, I guess, you know, there's power D for FreeBSD to uh, lower the frequency when you're not using it uh, and so on. And the C states. But yes, that wiki page could use some updating. A lot of it is quite old. I don't know that much of it is necessarily wrong. It just... Yeah, there are sections on there about FreeBSD 8, which probably should just be cleaned up. So you should maybe close all the applications you're not using at that moment um, to save a bit of processing cycles there. Right, but if, if he's actually seeing it pinned at the top, well, even at the top frequency, the CPU should be idle still and not hurting itself. It's hard to say. My other thing would just be uh, congratulations for still being able to run uh, Firefox with only two gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is something Yeah, nowadays, uh, eating more and more every new version that's coming out. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what OpenBSD does differently here. Yeah, I don't know if they have... I don't know that it's actually even running at a different uh, frequency, so I'm curious what might be actually different between the FreeBSD and the OpenBSD on that machine that would cause it to uh, overheat on FreeBSD. If someone from our listeners knows the answer or has a suggestion, um, send this to us and we'll cover it in a future episode as a follow-up. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your address. And uh, yeah, uh, other than that, we don't have much more as an answer. But yeah, definitely uh, thanks for the feedback. And now you are in a future episode coming out soon. And that pretty much wraps up this episode uh, of BSD Now. Thank you for listening in. And uh, again... If you have anything, send us to the email address I keep mentioning during this episode um, and see you and hear from us <laughs> next time. 